Good morning, everybody. If we haven't met before, my name is Rob Jacobson. I am glad you're here. And today, if you're not sure, if you're not a football fan, today's kind of a big day for Peyton Manning. Uh, Peyton Manning had never missed an NFL game before 2011 in his entire career up to that point. So in May of 2011, he probably thought his first surgery for a little bit of neck pain and a little bit of arm weakness was just kind of a minor setback, especially after playing for 13 years in the NFL. That's a pretty grueling time before having a major injury. So he went through this little surgery, he was fine, and then four months later, he went through a second surgery, this upper spine fusion, and doctors were wondering if he'd even be able to play football again. He missed the entire 2011 season. And if that's not a major setback, the team he'd served and led for 13 years released him just nine months after they signed him to a five-year contract extension. Now, they say the parting was mutual, and their faces just look so like everything's fine. But, you know, as we start this series, we're really, this is a journey from setback to comeback. And I thought about, like, wow, setbacks are challenging. I mean, most people don't really love to celebrate their setbacks. And so we're going to talk about some stories that might make you laugh, other stories that, that could make you cry. Um, but in the midst of this, know that it's a journey through, and we'll get into that more in a few minutes, but setback is when life sends you a surprise, and you end up in a place you never thought you'd be, and you fear you're never going to leave. It's like taking a trip that you don't want to make. Setback means loss. If we take our expectations and we put them up to our reality, and when our reality falls short of the expectations, we'll just call that loss. Most of us don't know how to process our losses. We don't know what to do with that. So one that's pretty easy for me to talk about, because it's a little bit more in my past, is it was still very hard, but it was the spring of my junior year of college, and I'm sitting out my entire swim season because I was awaiting a shoulder surgery and I couldn't really do the laps that were needed to be required in varsity swimming for college. And so I'm dealing with that and I'm pretty okay with that when all of a sudden this thick dread just settled over me as I'm in one of my upper level engineering classes. And it's kind of like a heavy blanket mixed with like this sick feeling that you get when you eat some food that you look and you know it's a little past the expiration date, but you risk it anyway. Um, That's the feeling that I had going on in my stomach. And to understand this, you have to understand that, that I really truly believed and people had told me and that because I was good at math, physics, drafting, and computer programming, Obviously, I would be good at and enjoy engineering. And two years later, the reality was that I just dreaded it. And I had this expectation that I was going to graduate in four years. The only reason I wouldn't graduate in four years was if I was going to double major, which I was contemplating, you know, because sometimes people tell me I'm an overachiever. So to just skip ahead, I just... to to expect to be done in four years and to be sitting in this class in the middle of my junior dreading going to school, I had no idea what to do with that. 
I expect it to be done in four years. I expected to just get, get through this. And I could only, at the time in my life, I could only see good things in my life as victories. And anything that looked like a setback or an obstacle obviously wasn't from God because it wasn't part of my plan. My plan. So I was just a little too naive at 20 or 21 to, to expect that, you know, like maybe I didn't know everything for first starters. And then number two, that in order to have a comeback, you have to have a setback. You can't have a comeback without having a setback. And I had no idea how amazing comebacks were. None of us can have a comeback without a setback. Just think if Peyton Manning would have skipped out on his setback. You know, just retired after 13 very productive, award-winning years. I think he would have completely missed how amazing comebacks can be. I mean, his exodus journey through surgeries and injuries and the release of this team, the Colts, to the comeback with the Broncos. I mean, these are not my favorite teams, but it's been spectacular. His first season back, he wins the NFL Comeback Player of the Year Award. His next season back, he gets an NFL record 55 touchdowns in one season. And today we'll see, at least millions of people will see if his 2014 season continues. And this seems all like the positive way to spin setback. But as we enter this Exodus journey, as we look through this book that God wrote so long ago through this person of Moses, we will see a journey of setback to come back, not just for God's people, but for us. Because every one of us, if we haven't already, we are going to take a trip that we do not want to make. And in those moments, it matters so much what we believe and how we think. Because otherwise, we are just going to end up wandering around in a desert, wondering if we're ever, ever going to get out. So today we begin the series by learning what we're supposed to take on our Exodus journey. What we're supposed to bring on a trip we don't want to make. So you can open up to Exodus 1. If you have a Bible, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's pretty cool. Now in Exodus 1, it says that there's a whole bunch of names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. So Israel, Jacob, same people. Whenever you see a list of names in the Bible, before I went to seminary, I would go, ooh, this is my opportunity to skip down. But after seminary, I learned that, no, no, the writer actually had a reason for that. It's sort of like looking at a family album, a family tree. Whenever God puts a list of names in, he wants to remind us of his people and his promises. And his promises were to Jacob's father's father, Abraham. And God made a covenant promise with the family of Abraham and Sarah to bless them and make them this great nation and this huge family. And they didn't even have any kids at the time. There were so many that we wouldn't even be able to count them. He'd be given this great name and they'd be given this promised land and the rest of the world would be blessed through them. So they're like, yeah, we're going to go. And on the way, they discover their own Exodus journeys. In fact, they end up in Egypt once or twice. And Egypt is a place that God's people never expected to be. 
Egypt is always a place that they'd gotten stuck. And Egypt was not where God promised they would be. So when Joseph, the guy that's the pretty much the man who God uses to save God's people during a famine, at the very end of the book that follows right before this, Joseph is on his deathbed and he says to his relatives, God didn't intend to leave us here. I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid. He'll take you up into the land he promised on an oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on that oath. When God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with me. He was convinced that even though this had been a place of blessing in their life, that they were not supposed to stay there. Egypt was really supposed to be this pit stop, not the promised land. But when we get to the book of Exodus, they are still stuck there. It says in verse 6 that, that in time, Joseph and all his brothers die, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and many gan- grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and they filled the land. If you read this in, in the Hebrew language and you're kind of a Bible student that you know, likes the little nuances and stuff, you will see that the same words that are used at the beginning here in these verses are the same words that are used in Genesis when God creates and he fills the streams and it says the waters teem with life. It says the little Israelite grandchildren like teemed, they crawled all over the ground. They just spread everywhere. They had these strong families, these big families. And this is the sign of God's blessing even though they're not in the promised land. It's all good, right? It's this reminder that God is fulfilling his promises that he made to Abraham. But then it takes this little turn. It says in verse 8 that that eventually a new king, a pharaoh, comes to power in Egypt that knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And he said to the people, look, Look how Israel, the people of Israel now outnumber us. And they're stronger than we are. And we must make a plan, a wise plan. Deal shrewdly with them, your text might say. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us, and they'll escape our country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down and crush them in their labor. They forced them to build cities of Pithom and cities of Ramesses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. Then the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said to the people of Israel, uh, then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. Isn't that a cool name? When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If he's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders, and they allowed the boys to live too. 
So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said, why have you done this? Why have you allowed these boys to live? And they said, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. The midwives said, they're more vigorous and they have babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own too. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Throw every newborn Hebrew baby into the Nile River, but you may let every girl live. Setback. Where do you see setback in this story? Pray with me. God, like Leah said a few minutes ago, it's so easy for us to look at the Old Testament and think, thousands and thousands of years ago. It can't relate to my life. But God, you promise that you're the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that these words are not just for the past, they are for the present and the future. So I pray that you would work in us to hear with not only our head and our ears, but also with our hearts and our souls to be the people that you've called us to be. Speak now through your word. Amen. So what happens when setback surprises you? I have a feeling these people were rather surprised at the news they got, where all of a sudden things were good, and then all of a sudden things were harsh. All of a sudden life started to feel like death. And all of a sudden these people, even though they never actually moved at that moment, are feeling displaced, like their home isn't really their home anymore. Like someone changed the rules on them. Like, They started to feel like there was all these people around them, but no one that really understood where they were at. Maybe literally, they started to feel very, very trapped. Did you catch the king's order when he said, they might fight against us and not kill us, but leave? There's a little bit of forced residency going on here. So they're probably feeling all these emotions. We don't actually know, but we can think about how we think when setback surprises us. Uh, I don't know how many of you were at work and and had access to a computer on Thursday while this snowstorm is coming into town. But uh, I know a few people that I heard stories from that started to freak out at their desks about 1.30 or 2. Not in my office, obviously, but other places in the world. And they started to to go, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to get home. I can't, I don't know. You know, spent 20 minutes complaining about something they could absolutely not change. I know none of us ever do that, but you know, sometimes when setback surprises us, we don't think about like why it happened or what, how we can respond to it. We just complain about it. Others of us, we're not really into you know, that thinking either, so we don't want to complain about it. We're just going to work harder and harder and harder and harder and keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Even if it's not working, we're just going to keep doing it. I think that's the definition of insanity. Keep doing something over and over and over and spec- expecting different results. And some of us, when setback surprises us, that's what we do. Others of us think, oh, setback equals bad. And we run as fast as we can away from it. Some of us think, I'm bad. 
I must have done something wrong. God must be punishing me. And we stay, but we just give in to this doubt and this fear and this sickening feeling. And then finally, I think some of us think, I can't. When setback surprises us, we go, I just give up. I quit. And in this story, there are, I, there are three essential beliefs that we've got to think if we're going to start this journey of exodus. Because we have to start in setback to get out, to come back. God can do things in setbacks that he can't do any other time in our lives. The first thing that I see here that we have to do or that we have to take on a journey we don't want to make, if you will, is to take a seat by believing that God is all-knowing. Christians, they have this, they have this belief that God is all-knowing and all-powerful and always present. They call it omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipresent omnipotent. And it's sort of hard to prove, and that's not really, you know, what we're going to talk about today. But if we really understand who God is, even though we don't hear a lot about him in the story, we actually hear a lot about Pharaoh, who thought he was a god, and they're in the land of Egypt, and how powerful he is, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. But if we really just sit and think about who God is, that will help us with what we need to believe. So this first idea of taking a seat by believing that God is all-knowing is this idea that God isn't surprised by setback. You know, when something comes into our life and it's like, whoa, what just happened here? God isn't like, oh my goodness, I never saw that coming. You know, but sometimes we, we run to him like, did you know that was going to happen? What am I going to do now? God's like, I don't know. No, I don't, pretty sure God's not doing that. Everybody throughout the Bible, if you look at the words exodus or you look at the words exile, that's what setback is. Everybody faces setback. It's just throughout the whole story. And when you ask the questions of did I mess up or are we being punished? Are we bad people or do we just have bad luck? Or do we just stop and remember? Oh, wait, wait, wait. All God's people face setback. Pretty sure Jesus faced a little setback in his life. So maybe I'll be okay. Maybe I can sit in this moment and not run from it. See, I think the Bible says that there's five reasons for setback. The first one is sin. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they doubted God's goodness and they doubted God's way and they rebelled against God's way, we don't see God punishing them because he doubted them. They see him they see him responding because of what they did in their doubt. That they rebelled against that and they worshipped this other thought, this thought of becoming like God. We worship all kinds of fake gods. And we slide into sin and we might feel sorry for ourselves and set back, so we, we think that, oh, if we just try to please ourselves, then, then we'll feel better about ourselves and then we can come back to pleasing God. And that's, that's just all sin. The second reason for setback is unbelief. Like, we doubt God's ability to help us. Because we were surprised by setback. We think God's surprised by setback. So then we're like, I don't know, God, can you you help us in this moment? 
And, and soon, as the, these people will get out of Egypt later, if you read ahead in the story, it's okay if you want to, not right now, but if you read ahead in the story, you'll see that they go out and God's like, here's the land I'm going to give you. And they're like, I don't, I don't know. There's so many big people there. I, I don't think you can, we can't do it. And, and so unbelief not only sets us back, unbelief keeps us stuck in setback. But they're not always bad like this. The next one is just bad decisions. We face setbacks because we make a poor decision. Like, potentially, you made a bad financial decision, and now you're in financial trouble, and it's not that God is punishing you. You made a bad choice, and, and so you've got to work out the consequences of that. Or maybe you said something that you know you shouldn't have at work or at home, and now you're paying for it. Or, or like, you know, for example, hypothetically, say on Thursday afternoon, you gave yourself 45 minutes to get somewhere that was only going to take 27 minutes because you wanted to give yourself margin because that's what you're trying to do in 2015. And then when you look at the snowstorm and you realize that it's going to take an hour to get there, you go, oh, I'm so mad this is happening to me. Or you could have just remembered there was a snowstorm and planned ahead. You made a bad decision. Not saying that that happened to me. But sometimes it's just bad luck because you could plan an hour and it still takes too long because the traffic is gridlocked and everybody's driving like a man. So sometimes just bad things happen. Sin, unbelief, bad decisions, bad luck. And then God's purpose. See, we forget that sometimes God calls us to go to setback. He says to Ezekiel, way later, son of man, pack your bags. I'm sending you into exile. I'm pretty sure that was a trip Ezekiel did not want to make. In fact, he lamented about it for quite some time. Sometimes we are called not because we're being punished, but because God has a purpose in setback. Because he might want to do something in us or he might want to do something with the people around us that can't happen any other way. As we'll see in the next few weeks, setback opens us up in ways that nothing else does. So we receive and hear and respond to God in a way that we don't do it when everything's going great. We just spent time this Christmas talking about Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were asked to take the baby Jesus and go to Egypt because of King Herod. And so they were called into setback, into exile, and they had to wait in God's purposes there. And so if God is all-knowing and he's not surprised by it, here's what we can do. We can choose to believe that God brings setback into our lives. Because he's going to do something that he can't do any other way. So we take a seat and step back. Second thing I see in this is that we can take heart by believing that God is always present. You know, our pastoral intern Louis shared a story last week about how when a super challenging thing came into his life, he and his wife were wondering where God was in the midst of that setback. And in this story, we see some of the same things. Like in verse 11, it says the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. 
they appointed these brutal slave drivers to oppress them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. Setback is when blessings become bitter. When, when you're called in your job, like a midwife or a nurse, to see new life enter the world, and now you're asked to be an agent of death. I'd say that's a bitter, bitter job change. Or you're a skilled craftsman, and now you're not only to ask to increase your production of quality and quantity, whether it's the pyramids or the cities, but you have to do it with less resources. They have to make, mix their own brick and mortar, it says in the text. And those who were working in the fields, they had to work longer and harder, but they got to bring home less for their families. All of these are when blessings become bitter. And I imagine you've all experienced them in one shape or another. When you're asked to do more with less, or you're asked to change something in your job that totally goes against how you would do it, have you ever really had someone that you you thought like it was their job change in their job to break your spirit? Maybe it was a supervisor. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a friend. And in those moments, do you take heart? I heard a speaker talk about a research project that was conducted by a marine biologist. Some of you might know the story, but the biologist started by putting this barracuda in this big tank. Barracuda is a very aggressive fish. It eats other fish. And so it's swimming around in this large tank, and then the, barracuda, or then the research guy throws a little bait fish in there, and, and as expected, the barracuda, bam, you know, smacks, eats the bait fish, you know, immediately attacks it. Then the researcher puts this large piece of plexiglass into the tank, creating these two, two smaller but still large tanks, and the barracuda is swimming around on this side, and then he drops the bait fish in the other side. And immediately the barracuda attacks, except it smacks right into the plexiglass. And undaunted, he hits again and again and again. And every several minutes, for an hour, this guy just attacks. And then finally, backs down. And he takes the bait fish out. A few hours later, puts the bait fish in again. You know, fish aren't very smart. So again, same thing. And he does this for a week. And finally... Slowly, slowly, slowly. The barracuda gets less aggressive and less aggressive until eventually he stops hitting the glass altogether. And then the marine biologist removes the glass and the bait fish is on the other side. And not only does the barracuda not attack it, but the bait fish swims around totally unharmed wherever it wants. And too often, when we're in the midst of setback, we've sat through it and we sat through it and it gets harder. And we're like, God, I'm obeying you by staying in the setback. I believe that you can do what only you can do. But why is this getting so hard? And all of a sudden, we're just like the barracuda. We don't see the hidden barrier. We just put it up in our minds and we forget who we are, and we forget who God is. God does not want your spirit to be broken when blessings become bitter. 
it doesn't mean we're supposed to skip out. If God is present, and he's always present, if we believe that he's always present, and we believe he's the source of life, God is life, then we should see signs of life even in the midst of setback. Look back at the story. Bad, 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 hard things happen. Oh, look, they're filling the land that God's people, all the generations have died that were with Moses, but, or with Joseph, but the people are fruitful. That's a sign that God is there. And then even in the midst of crushing labor and the oppression, it says the more that the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied. These are signs of life. Even in the showdown that we're about to look at in a second between these two midwives and Pharaoh, God says, because they feared him more than Pharaoh, he gave them families of their own. And the Israelites continued to increase. There are signs of life all over this really hard text. And in our lives, if God is the source of life, there will be signs of life in the midst of your setback. That's who God is. We take heart. We look for signs of good and signs of increase and signs of hope. And then lastly, we take courage on our trip that we don't want to make because God is all-powerful. Egypt was the longest, greatest civilization in history. Egypt built some of the most amazing architecture and the most powerful systems in the world, and they believed in many, many, many gods. There was not one supreme god. Well, maybe not. There was no one more powerful than Pharaoh, and the Egyptians thought Pharaoh was a god as well. So standing up to Pharaoh would be a little bit like, oh, I don't know, walking into North Korea and standing up to their dictator. I mean, it didn't work out super well for Sony Pictures. So, And it's one thing to be a foreign diplomat in a foreign country. And it's another thing to be an unknown nurse practitioner walking in and standing up to, at the time, the most powerful person on the planet in their home turf. And that's what's happening at the end of this story. Do you notice the irony, though, in the story? Who's the pharaoh? That's right. We have no idea. He goes completely unnamed in the story. Now, I'm sure the writer knew who it was, but the purpose was to say, it doesn't matter. He was a nobody. The most powerful person on the planet at that time is a nobody. And two midwives get named, women, by the way, which were, were rare to be named in the stories, And next week we'll see women are the ones that thwart all of his schemes, but that's just for later. So if you read it in the Hebrew, it says it more like this. So the king said to the Hebrews, one of whose names was Shiphrah, and the other's name was Huah. And it it extends out the language to make a very distinct comment on each of these women. They are more important than Pharaoh. Why? Because they took courage in the midst of a setback when they didn't know the outcome. And they said, I'm going to fear God. I'm going to revere God more than Pharaoh. I'm going to believe that God is more powerful than whatever I'm facing. 
and I cannot be asked to do this evil thing. They decided to let God work in their setback. Now, I don't know what each of you are facing, but I had about five different stories this week of people who are going through major setback. And I wrestled with this text all week. And this is not some old story. This is God's promise to his people throughout generations. It's his promise to you today. And it says that they feared God, so they refused to obey the king's orders. And, and yes, he gives this order at the end that's like, throw all the boys into the Nile. And, and now we're like, wait, wait, the Egyptians thought the Nile was their source of life, and, and now it's an agent of death? Like, what's going to happen? Well, the story continues. And sometimes in our lives, we are going to have those situations where it's like, wait, 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 this thing that was a source of life just became an agent of death. What am I supposed to do? They feared God. God was with them. He was all-powerful. He's still going to work. We may not find out the outcome right away. As you start your journey from setback to comeback, stay in it. Take a seat. God is all-knowing. Don't just take a seat, though. Take heart because he's always with us when the things that come that try and break your spirit, stop and know that God is there, that he hasn't forgotten you, that he loves you, that he has a plan and purpose, and that he can do things in setback that, that he can't do anywhere else. And then take courage to continue to follow God. A God who went through the ultimate setback in Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us, and then the ultimate comeback to be raised from death through the resurrection. So now we, we can choose to take communion. And communion remembers the Last Supper when Jesus was celebrating an event known as Passover. We're going to see Passover in the Exodus story where God miraculously brings the people from death to life, out of Egypt and into the promised land. It'll just take a while, but. So the Last Supper is this event that Jesus commemorates with his people, with his disciples as Passover. And in the New Testament, we see Christians continuing to do this through the practice of communion. And when we take it today, would you just ask God, God, is there one of these things that I need to take on my journey that I don't want to go on? Is it that I just need to stay? Is it that I need to remember that you're going to do work so I will not lose heart? Or is it that I need to stand up to something or stand against something, fearing you alone? In a few minutes, you can come when you're ready. There's gluten-free in the back, but... We want to remember Jesus' words that on the night he was betrayed, after he had given thanks for the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. When you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, 
and he blessed it. And after he had blessed it, he said, this cup is the cup of the covenant that is sealed in my blood. Every time you drink of it, remember me. It is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the same God that appears in the story of Exodus. You are the ultimate champion, the one who, who comes through your, your exodus from death to life. God, I pray that we would know that you're with us in whatever setbacks that we'll face and that you can do things in setback that you can't do anywhere else. And so today we just come and we, we take communion. And when we take communion, God, we accept the fact that you work in setback. We accept the fact that we will face things that will feel like exile, that might even feel like death. But God, we honor you because you gave yourself up, that you shed your blood, God, that you let your body be broken, that we might have forgiveness of sin. So together, be with us, God, as we eat this bread and we drink from this cup. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to know that we can have life. Amen.